Father, I pray for your word this morning. In our brief time together, I pray that we may be encouraged all the more to be people who are unified in the gospel for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to focus our attention this morning in Ephesians chapter 4 on verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6. Let me read God's word as we begin. Ephesians 4, verse 1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And literally, in verse 4, it says, One body, one spirit, Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May the Lord bless his holy word. The title of our message, beloved, is Unity in the Gospel. Unity in the Gospel. And it is a key message even if brief uh, this morning for our encouragement and for your own consideration as we look to 2016. Because as I mentioned, of course, this Sunday is the last Sunday of 2015. And I'm sure you would agree, if you are a part of the life of Calvary Bible Church, that it's been quite an eventful year for us as a church body. Um, There have been many wonderful things that have happened here at Calvary Bible Church, and we always want to give praise to the Lord for what He has accomplished. People have come to know Christ. There have been baptisms throughout the year. There have been conversions. There has been much growth and maturity in the lives of many of the saints here at Calvary Bible Church. Uh, We had the biggest registration of Vacation Bible School this year, I believe, in the history of Calvary, right, Brock? We had uh, the biggest registration, I believe, in Awana uh, ever if I'm not mistaken, as well. So there are some wonderful things to praise the Lord for, and yet there have been many, many challenges, have there not? Many challenges in our body. And as we look to the new year, beloved, I just want to remind us that Jesus Christ still sits on His throne, that He is the Lord of His church. And no matter what's going on in the world around us, whether it's in our country or all over the globe, we can... We can rest assured that because Christ rules and guides His church in 2016, that He will continue to build His church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He will do that. And so knowing this, it's my desire to speak to you first and foremost from God's Word, hearing it from this particular passage, and from my own heart as your shepherd, or one of your shepherds, that as we look ahead to the many wonderful things that are planned on church on our church calendar for 2016 and the many wonderful ministry opportunities that we have, beloved, that we do not lack the one thing that will make or break us as a church. And that is unity. Unity. A unity, not as the world defines it, superficially, but a deep and abiding unity that transcends life circumstances and trials and difficult times in our world. A unity that is not defined as uniformity, where everybody has to look the exact same way, and we all have to agree on everything as far as perspective goes, but a unity that appreciates the diversity of one another and strives, listen to me, for a greater cause than that of any single individual in this church. 
And that cause, beloved, is the progress of the gospel. As we see people coming to know Christ, conversions happening, people being born again, and as we see growth and maturity, Christ being formed in one another all the more in 2016. And this is precisely the kind of unity that Paul is talking about here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians. In fact, the whole section, verses 1 through 16, has to do with walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that worthy walk is unity in the gospel. And Paul has spent three whole chapters of Ephesians talking about the great spiritual blessings that God has bestowed upon believers. And now here in chapter 4, verse 1, he transitions to the practical portion of this letter. And the overarching exhortation that governs chapters 4 through 6 is this call to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Conduct that is worthy of the gospel. And when you survey chapters 4 through 6, as uh, uh, Pastor Tim Carnes walked through this book for a couple of years, a few years ago. When you survey chapters 4 through 6, you see that this worthy walk, this worthy conduct, is a walk in unity first and foremost in verses 1 through 16. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, it is a walk or a conduct not like the world. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, it is a walk or a conduct in love. In chapter 5, verses 8 through 14, it is a walk or a conduct in the light. In chapter 5, verses 15, all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9, it is a careful, wise walk. All of these walk statements in chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians um, characterize what conduct worthy of the gospel looks like. And beloved, how fitting and how appropriate for us that Paul would begin the practical portion of this letter in chapter 4 with the great priority of walking in unity. Because listen, God has made us one. We are one body. We are one spiritual family. We are one community of believers called out from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. This is who we are. We are one church. And our identity in Christ is as one. And yet in our experience with one another... We are to live and function as one, beloved. We are to live this way. We are to operate this way in our daily dealings with one another. You know, we've been learning so much about Christ in the last few months. So much about about knowing Him and His glory and His identity and that we would find our, our sufficiency in Him. But we must also realize that not only do we have fellowship with Christ, but we're interconnected with one another with Christ as the head of the body. We are in fellowship with one another. And as I read earlier in John 17, dear to the heart of our Lord Jesus is that those who belong to Him would manifest a sweet and tender love for one another. That we would flesh out a unity based upon something bigger than ourselves, namely the gospel that He Himself came to announce and introduce. Beloved, it is this unity that I desire for us as a church in 2016 and beyond, that we would focus upon unity in the gospel, that we would be a people in 2016 that would love one another, that would genuinely be at peace with one another, that we would carry out individual and collective ministry together as one body, motivated by true love for one another. 
And in verses 1 through 6, I see four aspects of unity that I want us to look at this morning. Very quickly, four aspects of unity that I want us to reflect upon this morning to help us in this endeavor of loving one another and walking in unity in the gospel. And as we look at these verses, I want to challenge you. And I want you to consider, is there someone, very practically speaking, is there someone with whom I need to have a conversation this week in this body? Or maybe outside of this body, another believer. Someone that I need to reconcile with. A relationship that I need to revisit. I'm giving you homework, all right? To seek out unity with another believer with whom you have not had that priority of unity. To seek out that particular relationship. Because this is utterly important to the Lord. And it is utterly important to Paul, which is why he he zeroes in on unity in the gospel in verses 1 through 16, first and foremost. And that is the first aspect that I want you to see. The urgent exhortation to unity in verse 1. Notice this. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul, with this word, therefore, points us back to the first three chapters of Ephesians, to everything that God has done, the amazing blessings of God upon the life of the believer. And it is on the basis of God's abundant blessings that Paul is saying, therefore, in light of all that God has done for you, walk this way, conduct yourself in this particular manner. And the first way that you ought to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel is pursuing unity with one another. God has chosen us in Christ. Listen, God has predestined us in Christ. God has redeemed us in Christ. God has forgiven us in Christ. Given us an inheritance in Christ. Sealed us in Christ with the Holy Spirit. He has shown you His great power in the raising of Christ from the dead and the raising of you from spiritual death. Christ, the great, the great peacemaker, in Ephesians two eleven through 22, has, has reconciled us to God by virtue of His atoning death. He's made us a part of the church of God. There are great blessings that God has bestowed upon us to such an extent that when Paul concludes the first three chapters, in 3.21 he says that to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Great blessings we have experienced, beloved, in the gospel. And Paul reminds them of the seriousness of this exhortation. I, the prisoner of the Lord. It's as if Paul is saying, not only is my exhortation to you on the basis of God's great blessings in the first three chapters that you ought to walk worthy of the gospel in unity, but look at my own life. I have paid the price for the gospel, Ephesians. Walk worthy of it. Paul is imprisoned when he writes this letter to the Ephesians. And it's as if he's saying, I have paid the cost for the gospel. I am fully committed to this cause. And my exhortation to you is that you too would walk worthy of the gospel. And that is what he exhorts them to. Paul has conducted himself worthy of the gospel, has given his life for it. And he says, you too, Ephesians, and you too, Calvary Bible Church, and you too, Kempis Hernandez, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, conduct yourself in a manner consistent with your great calling. Because we have a great calling, do we not? And it is all a work of God to have saved us. This Worthy conduct, beloved. This worthy walk is appropriate 
suitable, fitting for we as believers who have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. Notice that Paul doesn't just begin with do this and do that. But he says, but in accordance with your great calling, this is how you ought to conduct yourself. In accordance with that great calling. In accordance with the greatness of what God has done in your life. So with these opening words, he highlights the urgency of this exhortation to unity. Paul is calling them and us to live as children of the King, beloved. To live as children of the King. But we know that this worthy walk in unity and keeping unity doesn't just happen. Amen? It doesn't just happen. It requires the practice of certain godly qualities. Of certain attitudes that we must manifest. And that's the second aspect of unity here that I want to call your attention to. The indispensable qualities of unity. That if we are going to have unity in our body in 2016 and beyond, there are some indispensable qualities or attitudes, you might call them, that we must manifest in our own lives. These are qualities that promote and foster unity in our relationships. And without which, beloved, listen to me, we will not have gospel unity in our church. See, the church is full of sinners saved by grace. None of us came in here because we were really nice, cool people. Right? The church is full of sinners saved by grace. And the issue is not, will we experience conflict or turmoil with other people? The issue is, when we do experience that conflict, how will we respond? How will we respond? Will we respond in a fleshly, carnal manner? Or will we respond with what Paul says here, with all humility and all implied gentleness? Here are some unifying qualities that are essential, indispensable. And Paul says, with all humility. Or it could be translated, lowliness of mind. I I like that translation. Lowliness of mind because it focuses on how a person thinks of himself or herself. See, genuine humility comes from a proper evaluation of oneself, beloved. Not in the light of others. And how we measure and stack up in comparison to other people. But in the light of the greatness of God. In the light of who He is. See, our tendency is to, is to measure ourselves in, in comparison to other people. And then pride creeps in. And we elevate ourselves above others. We can always find somebody that we are much better in a particular area then. But if you and I were sitting In this first century church, we were one of those Ephesian believers. And we would have heard the letter of to the Ephesians read. The whole letter. And you would have just heard the first three chapters of Ephesians about God's great work on their behalf. We would quickly realize that nothing in those first three chapters raises our level of self-esteem. Nothing does. Because the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about what God has done. Right? All about the blessings of God. All about the greatness of God. Everything that He has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would be brought low, knowing that we have brought nothing to the table. And so therefore there is no room for pride or thinking that somehow we are great outside of Christ. There would be no room whatsoever. When you reflect upon the first three chapters of Ephesians, in other words, there is no room for thinking highly of ourselves. 
for elevating ourselves above others. You see, Paul mentions his first quality because pride is ultimately at the root of disunity, beloved. That is at the root of disunity. Somebody in the body of Christ who thinks of him or herself as better than others and seeks to run his or her own agenda for selfish purposes will only contribute disruption to the unity of the body. Someone in the body who has forgotten that the, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that all of us have come in the same way to salvation, no one stands on elevated ground, we are unworthy sinners saved by grace, but when we forget that, we will be in constant conflict and turmoil with others. Humility is indispensable if you and I are going to contribute to preserving the unity of the body of Christ. It is indispensable. But notice he says, with all humility and all implied gentleness here. Gentleness is really the outward expression of humility in our interaction with others. It can be translated meekness. This is a beautiful word. Gentleness or meekness. It conveys the idea of a, of a conscious exercise of self-control rather than one of retaliation. It is the willingness to waive your rights for the intrinsic benefit of others. It is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. And you want to know something about gentle people? And this is going to hurt each and every one of us in here. The issue and what is characteristic of gentle people is that they trust God. They are people who trust God. Gentle people characteristically live consciously aware that God is sovereign over everything that happens, especially the wrongs committed to us. And if we really believe that, if we're really convinced that God is the one who is sovereign and in control of everything, then we will display gentleness and self-restraint and quiet restraint toward one another because we leave room for the wrath of God rather than taking matters into our own hands in the way that we respond harshly. Gentle people trust God. You know who was the greatest example of meekness and gentleness? The Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, these are his words. Come to me, all who are weak, weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He was the ultimate example of meekness, of gentleness, of humility. But Paul goes on and he says, with all humility and gentleness, with Patience, with patience or long-suffering. In some contexts, this word patience is, is translated forbearance. One of the great qualities of our great God, according to Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, is that He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness in His dealings with other people. This patience or long-suffering refers to a person's ability to endure suffering and attacks without retaliation. It is self-restraint in the face of being provoked unjustly. And each of us have experienced that, have we not? We are provoked unjustly, whether by perception or reality. This is self-restraint in the face of you being unjustly provoked. It is that, that long-suffering which makes allowance for other shortcomings and endures wrong. 
without retaliation or holding grudges toward others. And instead, what you do is you extend kindness and grace to others. You do what Paul goes on to say, showing tolerance for one another in love. I prefer show forbearance or endure for one another in love. Endurance for one another in love. The showing forbearance for one another in love is the, is the practical expression of, of patience and long-suffering. I love A.T. Robertson's translation here of showing tolerance for one another in love. He says, this means to lovingly hold yourselves back from one another. To lovingly hold yourselves back from one another. Notice the, the love that motivates this type of self-restraint. Loving forbearance is not reluctant in nature. It is not superficial. It is not, I'm just going to put up with them then, if, I, if I'm a part of the body of Christ with them. I'll just put up with my husband. I'll just put up with my wife. Who likes to hear that in counseling? <laughs> I remember a lady saying that to me. Saying, are you saying I just need to put up with him? And I said, absolutely not. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you just need to put up with him. That wouldn't be very loving, would it? What I'm saying is, this loving forbearance is based upon a right understanding of, of God and how He has treated us in Christ. That He has displayed His amazing love toward us. That He has lavished His grace upon us, beloved. And therefore, in response to that gospel reality, we display loving forbearance toward one another, not just putting up with one another as people in the world do. Marriage is in the world where couples just simply put up with one another. Eventually, they split up because once the kids are gone, there's no basis or ground or motivation to keep them together anymore. They're just reluctantly staying together. That is not what the Lord desires from us. See, all of these qualities, all of these qualities were considered weaknesses in the ancient world. All of them were. Some of them were derogatory, But for us who are believers, they are indispensable qualities if we are going to preserve unity, beloved. You say, but Kempis, it's hard to manifest these in and of myself. Amen. Preach it. Yes. That is why we need the Spirit of God. Amen. We need to be people who are filled with the Spirit of God. And we need to be seeking God and asking Him to help us display humility and gentleness and patience and loving forbearance toward one another. It is a supernatural act of God. In and of ourselves, we can't do it, beloved. We can't do it. We need His help. But Kempis, others don't reciprocate them. I keep displaying these qualities over and over again, and they don't reciprocate them. Yes, this is why reflecting on the gospel of Jesus Christ is so crucial for us, beloved. In Christ, think about it. God showed us the greatest act of humility in having condescended in the person of the Son, in the incarnation, and then further condescension on the death of Christ, and then further condescension to to die even death on a cross, says Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He condescended to the very lowest of places. Who are we to want something different? In Christ, God showed us what perfect meekness and gentleness looks like. Because He, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had all of the power at His disposal, even legions of angels, upon being confronted and rejected, He could have called upon all of them. And what did He do? 
display meekness and gentleness? Did he not? Self-restraint. Jesus was the ultimate example of power under control. Power under control. In Christ, God showed us what patience and long-suffering looks like. What did Jesus do while suffering? He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God. See, in, in Christ, God showed us what it means to lovingly forbear with sinners who rejected him, who beat him, who ridiculed him, who crucified him. And beloved, as God's children, we're called to walk in the steps of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit of God, in humility and gentleness and patience and loving forbearance. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ is our high priest and why we can come to him and ask him for his help by his Spirit that we may be people who are displaying these godly qualities. As we manifest these qualities in the power of the Spirit, then we will be able to do what verse 3 calls us to. Notice what he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that's the third aspect of unity that I want to call your attention to, the diligent pursuit of unity. The practice of these godly qualities paves the way for us to keep the right priority in our relationships, namely that of preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I want you to notice the wording in verse 3 because it is very, very significant what Paul says here. We don't create unity. We preserve it. We preserve it, beloved. We do not create unity. We pursue fleshing unity out in our experience and our interaction with one another. Unity is spirit produced. It is Calvary produced. In fact, back in chapter 2, Paul wrote that through Christ, both Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father, that Jesus is the great peacemaker who has reconciled us to God. He is the one who has established unity. Unity is Calvary produced, a Calvary produced reality. We don't create unity, but we preserve it. And if you and I are in Christ, we are one with others who are in fellowship with Christ. I liken it to to union in in a marriage. You are one with your spouse. But we don't always function that way in marriages, do we? We're not always living out that oneness. And so Paul says that we must give maximum effort to living out in our experience this unity that Christ has established. He says, being diligent. It's this, this continual participle. To make haste is the idea. To be zealous or eager to the task of keeping unity. This implies a, a continuous effort and eagerness to this goal of preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It is not passive. It is not assumed. It is not compromised. It is not taken for granted. Unity, beloved, and our experience with one another as one doesn't just happen. It requires our maximum effort and the display of the right kinds of attitudes and virtues in the power of the Spirit of God. It requires that we pursue it in the highest, as the highest priority. By the way, unity is not superficial. It is not superficial. It is not just getting along. It is not just putting up with one another. It is not simply you avoiding others because you just can't get along with them. We are exhorted to preserve a unity that is genuine, 
from the heart, based upon a, a more profound reality, the spiritual union that the Spirit of God has accomplished in our hearts and lives by virtue of the fact that we've turned from our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be physically evident, beloved, observable unity. The kind of unity that is committed to the success of one another, not to step on top of one another to get ahead. That type of unity. It should show itself physically and visibly in the way that we treat and interact with one another. And can I tell you this? It is not truce. Unity doesn't equal truce as in warfare. When you temporarily cease fire for a time because you simply just can't work something out. See, we adopt this, this mentality of truce in the church as well, do we not? We do that. Rather than pursuing true peace with one another, we are in a state in certain relationships of temporarily ceasing fire. Things did not work out in a relationship, so we declare truce. Hey, let's go our separate ways. We're not called to be best friends after all. We're done. Someone burns you in the body of Christ, so you declare truce. Somebody rubs you the wrong way in the church, you declare truce. Somebody did not agree with your perspective on a particular thing, so what do you do? You declare truce. Neither side wants to humble themselves or take responsibility or take the high road. What do you do instead? You temporarily cease fire. And we all know that that is not genuine peace, is it? That is not the peace that Christ came to establish, beloved. Because the next time that something happens, you are at the, at the throat of that other person again and vice versa. It's truce. It's not peace. It manifests itself in vicious talking behind one another when those things are not really resolved. We see it. See, the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to a peace that is genuine, authentic, that is visibly seen, observable in the lives of one another, that is motivated by love and based upon a deeper, more profound reality, and that's a salvation and the union that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we can't adopt a worldly mindset, beloved, when it comes to true unity in our relationships with other believers. We can't go that route. In many of our relationships, we simply keep our distance from others in the name of peace. That is not peace, beloved. That is truce, and that is a worldly mindset to have. And I would challenge you this week to revisit that relationship that you know you have terribly failed in. That you would revisit that relationship again. And to make sure that everything, as far as it depends upon you, that you would be at peace with that person. I challenge you to do that. That we would love one another. That we would learn to forgive one another. That we would look to to restore one another. To reconcile with one another, beloved. And thereby fulfill the law of Christ and glorify our almighty God. See, what the Bible is commanding us to do is to live out that which we are, in fact, as children of God, that we are one, that we're in union with Christ, we're members of the body of Christ, and thus members of one another. So we've seen this urgent exhortation to unity, the indispensable qualities or attitudes that lead to unity, this diligent pursuit of unity, and fourthly, and lastly here, The unbreakable realities of unity. The unbreakable realities of unity. 
Maybe some of you are thinking, boy, Hernandez, you're really, uh, you're really sounding kind of lovey-dovey in this message. Just all love one another, forgive each other. Where's truth in all of this? I mean, this sounds all pretty ecumenical, doesn't it? Well, here are the unbreakable, indestructible truth realities, if you will, of unity in verses 4 through 6. This is not unity at the expense of truth. These are seven fundamental truths or realities in the gospel that unify us, and they have nothing to do with anything that we have done, beloved. They're all orchestrated by our all-powerful God. They don't have anything to do with anything that we have done. And the focus over and over again, and the emphasis in verses 4 through 6, is on the oneness of the body of Christ. In fact, Paul, in verses 4 through 6, uses three different Greek words in verses 4 through 6, all translated as one. And there is no connector in verse, in verse 4. If you're looking at the New American Standard, there is no there is in verse 4. It simply goes right into one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And over and over again, the emphasis is on one and the oneness that we share. The fact that we are one body and one spirit, that we have one hope as those who have been called, that we have one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one great God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And the point that Paul is making here, by the way, is not to dissect each of these beautiful realities. He's done that to one extent or another, expanded upon them in the first three chapters, the, the focus over and over again. And the point is to highlight the oneness that we share. That's what his point is in verses 4 through 6. That our preserving of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace peace is based upon something that God has done. These indestructible truths. Notice, everything in verses 4 through 6 cries out, One, one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 and oneness all over the place. Indestructible truths that God himself has done, beloved, that we would preserve that in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we interact with one another. This is why Psalm 133 verse 1 says, How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Beautiful. In Philippians, Paul wrote the book of Philippians to point the Philippian believers to to unity in the gospel in light of a conflict between two women. Come alongside of these women, he says in chapter 4. Come alongside of them and help them work through this issue for the greater progress of the gospel. And Paul says in Philippians 1.27, Whether I come and see you or remain absent, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, he says. Unity in the gospel, beloved, is what Paul calls for in Philippians and what Paul is calling the Ephesians to hear as well. And what I submit to you, Calvary Bible Church, in 2016, I, as one of your pastors, will be praying for and will be longing for that we would live and labor for a greater cause than any one man's cause. 
That we would labor for the progress of the gospel and do so loving one another. Seeking to, to preserve this unity that God has indestructibly established. Amen? That is what we need to be praying for. In fact, even in verses 7 through 16, Paul expands upon the uniqueness of each individual member in verse 7 and following in the body of Christ. And his point is that each member is to use that which the risen, ascended Christ has given him for the building up of the body of Christ in love. So that even if there's, there's diversity and unity in the church, it's all to be done for the building up of the body of Christ, for the edification of of each and every member, and as a collective group in love. Can I encourage us in closing? This unity is to be preserved, regardless of your age bracket. Regardless of whether you're older and younger. And I'm not going to go there with what that means. But you get the point, right? Older, younger... You and I need to be diligent in preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This priority of unity in the gospel needs to be pursued regardless of your social or financial standing. Regardless of where you're at in that bracket. Regardless of your upbringing or your background. Regardless of your race or your ethnic background, beloved. We are one in the gospel. The gospel has broken down those barriers, those dividing walls, if you will. This unity is to be pursued no matter how long you've been at this church, whether you're new or you've been here for decades. We need to be careful with dividing lines, beloved. We need to be careful with elitism in the church, with dividing over peripheral matters. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one stands on higher ground. We are all equal members of one another if you are in Christ. And as we look to 2016 and the many wonderful opportunities before us, my encouragement to you as your pastor, as one of your pastors, is that we be people who flesh out God's indestructible unity established in Christ. And that we would remember the words that we read earlier in John 17 from our Savior, that we may be one to the glory of God the Father. It's dear to the heart of our Lord. And I can assure you that the world these days, especially these days, is searching for what genuine unity and true love is, beloved. They just don't know it. And we, who know the love of God in Christ our best position to authentically and visibly show the world what it means to love one another and be united for a greater cause, the progress of the gospel. We can live that out. We can. With the Spirit's empowering and leading. And I pray that God would help us in 2016 as a community of believers to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace for the glory of God, the exaltation of Christ, and the encouragement of the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Father, oh Lord, when we reflect upon the the beauty and the majesty of who you are and everything that you've done, what is man that you take thought of him, Lord? What is man that you would send your beloved Son into the world to purchase us from sin? That in him... In crushing your own son, you have brought us into fellowship with yourself and into fellowship with one another. 
And Lord, I pray that as a church, as we look at these indestructible realities and truths, that Lord, we may be people who in the power of the Spirit seek to live out these realities in our experience with one another, in our relationships with one another. Father, I pray that this week that you would move in our hearts and convict us if there is that relationship or those relationships, Lord, that, Lord, we have terribly failed in. I pray that we would revisit that relationship and that, Father, we would look to the greater progress of the gospel of Christ as the ultimate priority and see how that perspective shapes that particular relationship, Lord. I pray that forgiveness may be asked where it's needed, where it's justified, Lord. I pray that reconciliation may take place. I pray that we would be a church known for our unity in the gospel, in the truth, in the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as well as in the way that we treat one another and we practice the one another's in the power of your spirit. We ask you all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.